This is the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a podcast for creatives, for those who are beginning to be creative or those who have built a business around their creativity. Here, we allow creatives to tell their story about how they got to where they are today, and we give some tips on how to make your creative business better than it was yesterday. Hey, everybody, guess what? The creative writing community is now open for membership. I'm so excited about this community because it is going to be dedicated to writers writing their book, publishing their book, and launching their book, all while having a good time and growing in their craft. Writing is typically an all-alone art, but you don't have to be a lone wolf and do everything yourself. In fact, I highly recommend that you don't, just for your own sanity. In the creative writing community, we're going to have live writing sprints, author hangouts, expert Q&As. We're going to learn all about the things that it takes to be an author these days and generally support each other in the craft. It will be a place where you can share your knowledge and learn from others and find collaboration and accountability with people who are serious about growing as writers. We're going to support each other, encourage each other, challenge each other, and be generally as committed to seeing each other succeed as we are to our own success. If you're interested in being part of such a group, head on over to catcaldwell.com and just click the pink button right at the header. Welcome back, everyone, to the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. We are in the month of June, and we are on episode 88. Today, you're going to hear from Javier Garza, um, and I'm really excited for you to hear about his journey into art and illustration and how much he is influenced by where he grew up. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you a little bit about before we go into the interview. I really think that it's important to look back and embrace where we grew up, how we grew up, the culture that we lived in, and allow it to influence our art. I don't know about you, but it never really occurred to me that I had a culture. Perhaps you are kind of of the family that just, you know, maybe didn't have a ton of traditions, maybe just sort of went along in life and and kind of like the majority of your area just sort of did whatever you did. And you didn't really see it as a culture. But I would like to encourage you to look back and see what influenced you and how that has influenced your art and your creativity. It's interesting because sometimes when your family is a little bit different from those around you, you can automatically see the cultural aspect and the beauty of that culture easier than when you're from a family that's kind of like the rest of the neighborhood, right? Now, Javier Garza is from the Valley in Texas, and he was kind of surrounded by families like him. But in, you know, in the United States, in which as he was growing up, it was mostly English speaking, you know, that was kind of the television influence, um, what was going on kind of outside of Texas culturally influenced all of the the music and the TV and all that, you know, so he could kind of see a difference in how he was growing up and how his family was. But whether you're in the States, in another country, look around you and see how much the stories that your grandparents have told you, the art that you see around you, how much it influences you. And if you haven't allowed it to really come out in your own art, I encourage you to start thinking about how you can release that from the depths of your memories the depths of your childhood and let it influence something in your creativity. You know, we don't always have to be looking towards the future, looking to do the next big thing, um, the next thing that will be fashionable or uh, viral, as we like to say these days. And yeah, it's always good to be looking to the future, but I think to always be pulling from the past as well. There's a lot to learn from the past. There's a lot to learn from those who have gone before us, whether in art, in your creativity, or within your family. You might be surprised looking back at how your family got to where they are. You might find a story in there, a way to, a a new perspective on your art to maybe tell their story. 
Maybe you can just see the influence of how you can help influence other kids. Like you'll find with Javier, he does bilingual books and we'll talk more about it. He'll tell us all about it. But you know, bilingualism is really becoming a big thing these days. And to be able to help the kids that are live far from him continue with their bilingual education is really awesome. You know, and if he hadn't gone back to pull back from how he uses two different languages every day and pulling from that culture, maybe he wouldn't have these books bilingual. Maybe they'd only be in Spanish or only be in English. So when you just look around you, you see how you're living out your life. See what little things you can pull the string from and let it wrap around your paintbrush, your pencil, you know, your whatever it is that you use and see how it can sort of infiltrate into your art. And I, I'm not saying that you have to do that always. Of course, a lot of you already have a certain style that you enjoy and that you pursue. But even as Javier says, you know, it's, it's good to always try a new thing, a new medium, a new style, a new theme, and see if you can push yourself creatively. So that's just my thought for this week. Uh, what if we looked back and, you know, for me, a lot of my childhood, I kind of rejected the influences. I wanted to leave Wisconsin. I am a city girl. You know, I was sort of like, I felt like I grew up in the wrong area. I should have been in New York. <laughs> I had a lot of ideas. But looking back, and this probably happens as you get older, you think, okay, you know, I had a rich childhood. I had a childhood in which I stayed outside a lot, despite being asthmatic, where we would play orphans all the time. And we had our little tree house that was not a tree house. It was underneath a tree. <laughs> it's literally a house under a tree. None of this amazing structures that we see these days that kids get. I got stuck in the mud several times. We had a tobacco field behind us. You know, all these little things that you don't think are very interesting as a kid. You look back as an adult and you can see how the world has changed quite a bit. You know, that farm is no longer there. It is now a retirement home. It's a great place for them. It has a lot of trees. You know, one of my first memories of moving to the farm is we crossed the creek when we weren't supposed to. Of course, I fell in <laughs> and I got in trouble. And then uh, my brother got in trouble. Anyway, looking back and thinking, okay, is it worth putting into my stories? Is it worth putting into my art? Can I just even accept it and allow it to be part of me and see if maybe it will influence my creativity for the better? Anyway, that's my little tidbit. If you guys are looking for a way to start writing again, you know, Javier is an artist, he's a painter, he's an illustrator. And when it came to books, he decided that he wanted to write the stories because they were his stories. So even if you aren't a writer per se, and you are of another creative persuasion, if you want to write a little bit, I encourage you to head over to catcaldwell.com and click about halfway down on the writing sprints. I have them about once a month. Uh, we do live writing sprints with prompts. You can use them either introspectively or with your creative characters if you want to do fiction. I usually do them at the end of the month. So by now, the May, I think there is one on June 1st, but those have already gone. If you can't wait till the end of June, I'm also coming out with a five-day writing sprint with writing prompts little course. And for all of you listeners, it is going to be free through the summer. So if you want to find out more about that, it'll be at catcaldwell.com as well. I encourage you to write. It is a different medium for some of you, but I think it will get your creative juices flowing in your other art as well. For all of you writers, uh, obviously writing is a good thing for you. So you are definitely welcome to come to the writing sprints that have writing prompts. And if you want to find out more about the creative writing community in which we gather as writers to write together, to encourage each other, to help launch each other's books and have master classes every single month with experts in the publishing and writing field, 
be sure to check out the creative writing community. If you want to come in and meet some of us and write, a writing sprint in the creative writing community is more about coming in and writing your story. So we just do it live. We do it on Zoom, 20 minutes. We all are quiet and we do our writing and then we come and talk for five minutes and do it again, (laughs) over and over again for about two hours. If you would like to participate in one of those, you can contact me, you can get on my website, send me an email. I'm available on almost every single social media platform there is, except for TikTok, because you don't want to see me dance. <laughs> but on Facebook, I'm at Cat Caldwell Author. On Instagram, at Cat Caldwell Author. You can contact me there. Or you can sign up for my newsletter, which you can do if you head on over to catcaldwell.com and all those links will be in the show notes and all of Javier's links will be in the show notes as well. So you can go see his fabulous books. I also want to tell you that I'm going to put up Javier's video interview, just the video part is the same interview on patreon.com because he shows me a few pictures and a picture of his great granddad. So if you want to become a sponsor of the show, if you want to see the show, keep going, head on over to patreon.com. There's quite a few videos over there, a little extras. And this week there will be another extra with Javier. So you can see him, see his book, see his Luce Libre drawings and a picture of his great granddad there. If you don't want to become a Patreon member, but you want to keep Christy, my editor, and I caffeinated, you can click the link below in the show notes to buy us a coffee, and we always, always appreciate it. Now, on to the interview. Hello, Javier Garza. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, no, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Uh, you know, I've, I've been looking forward to it. Yes, me too. Uh, what we have to thank Evan for our connection here. So thank you, Evan, for connecting us. I just wanted to, to hear a little bit about you. You grew up way down in the south of Texas. And actually, we have a connection because my grandmother grew down. Up there. Very cool. <laughs> Can you tell us a little yeah, it is. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, well, where you're from? Well, I was born in McAllen, Texas, but I was raised in a small town called Rio Grande City. I lived there till I was 18 and, uh, you know, and lived in Edinburgh for a few years, for about five years before moving up to San Antonio. Uh, and, you know, like what I think, one thing about that I tell people about the Valley growing up in El Valle is that one of the things that I've learned is that the Valley has a rich history of literature and a rich history of art. Now, a lot of times people don't, don't know it or don't really, haven't heard about it. But, you know, truth be told, I tell them, like, when it comes to the writing, I tell them, you know, I learned that the Rio Grande Valley is the place that gave us Gloria Amsaldúa, which is like about as big a name in, in Chicana literature as you can get. Uh, gave us Jovita González, which was the first female Latina scholar. Uh, gave us Américo Paredes. Mm-hmm. You know, the, you know the, one of the first uh, Hispanics, Latinos, to re- get an actual, you know, uh, doctorate degree. And he wrote the book with a pistol in his hand, The Ballad of Gregorio Cortez. And then, and, and, uh, and I also tell him it's the home of David Rice, who, you know, Hermet Calchelsa, who wrote Give the Pig a Chance, Rodez Aldaña from Peñitas, David Bowles from Donna, Yola Canales from McAllen. And it just goes on and on and on. And, so, you know, to me, it's like, it's like this rich culture that, to be honest, growing up, I really didn't appreciate it. But then the older I got, the more that I started to really, truly understand it, appreciate it, and realize just how lucky I was to have grown up in El Valle. Because I tell people, you know, in the Valley, we do code switching a lot. <laughs> and growing up, you don't really notice it. Do you realize that in one sentence, you'll tell your, like, I will tell my mom, Hey, mom, voy para la tienda. You want me to get you something? And it's like just the mixing of both languages, like without effort, without even yeah. thinking about it. And it all just sort of flows. And and uh, and even in the even in the way we write and we do our art, I mean, the both uh, both cultures just intermingle uh, together. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I I think um, people don't think much of rural Texas. 
I mean, I guess we would call it rural, even though it's where my grandmother grew up, I guess, was yeah. orchards, but still it was a thriving city as well at one point. But yeah, people don't really give much thought to that. And on the other hand, I think it is being surrounded by the rich differences of nature there that might actually influence a lot of your your creativity. Yeah, well, it's like I tell people, you know, like a lot of this artists and authors, we all, I tell people, like we grow growing up in the Valley, no matter where you go, whether you end up in Austin, Houston, Dallas, New York, wherever, in the end, when it comes down to our stories, we all draw water from the same well, you know, uh, our mm-hmm. inspirations, our ideas come from that same culture. We might interpret it differently. You know, the way I write is different from the way, say, uh, somebody else writes or somebody, another person does. But we're all drawing inspiration from the same source. And even when it comes to the art, yeah. it's like you can tell one person, paint this image. And you tell all three other people to just paint an image of this. And you're going to get yeah. totally different interpretations because while the subject matter is familiar to all of them, everybody's going to perceive it in yeah. his or her own way. That's so true. That's so true. So there's a, you you have quite a few different creativities. So let's start with one. When did you start drawing? Uh, My earliest recollection of drawing, honestly, is paper bags and crayons that uh, as a kid, I was very, uh, I had to do something. Because if I wasn't given something to do, I was going to get in trouble. Not in a bad way, <laughs> but, you know, I had to be kept busy. Because if not, you know, my I just wanted to do this or do that. So uh, I remember my, uh, I would, uh, they got me a box of crayons and they told me to just use the, the paper bags. I told people once upon a time, there used to be paper bags at, at all the grocery stores. And I would just draw pretty much what I saw on TV. So I saw that I did a lot of pictures of Roadrunners and Batman and all this other. And, and my dad, you know, bless his heart, he never complained. But his lunch lunches that he would take to work were always in bags covered with pictures of the Roadrunner and what have you. And uh, and I'm sure he got ripped at work when he would show up with his <laughs> bag covered with cartoons. But that's my earliest recollection of when I started to to draw and. Uh, and like I said, I, I tell people in comic books, comic books were a big mm-hmm. influence on me. And I, I kind of use that graphic novel type of uh, illustration to, to the work. And the deal with it is that I tell people growing up, uh, I mean, I grew up in a small town. So really my exposure to the outside world, like for, in other cities and other places for, when I was little, was books and television. And it all just kind of, became uh, a part of me and and, and I, I said I love to draw I drew in elementary school I drew in junior high I drew in high school and what ended up happening is, you know I went to college and and you know, wanted to he had to major in something and I liked art so I figured well I'll study art and uh and that's kind of like where I kind of got a direction in the sense mm. that one of my professors Will Martin told me he was you draw good, but have you, you need to work with themes. And I was like, themes? What's a theme? Well, that's when you pick a subject matter and you do many different interpretations of that same subject matter, but, you know, you know, from different uh, perspectives of it. And so, and that's where I got into the idea of a theme. And then one time he took me to an art show he was having. Because, you know, you know, my, I grew up in an area where, you know, art exhibits, all that stuff was just not happening. I mean, Rio Grande City was far enough from, you know, aside from the county fair, there really was no place to showcase your work. So he took me to a night show. And, right. and that was when I kind of got hooked on the idea of people are there. They're looking at your work. They're talking about your work, saying good things or criticizing it or what have you, giving you advice. That's where I got hooked on the idea of uh, of doing art shows and trying to, uh, you know, when the way I see it, if somebody, if somebody gives you a critique on your work, don't take it personal. Listen to what mm-hmm. they have to say. And if the advice they give you makes sense to you, then use it. 
if you don't think it makes sense, then you can discard it. But, you know, you know, what do you call it? Uh, the idea being that never, ever think you know how to do anything perfectly because the minute you do, yeah. that's the day that you stop learning. You stop and you, you stop getting better. You know, you got to always keep in mind, you know what? I can get better. This is good. But you know what? I can do better and I can do better and and, and be open to looking at the work of other people. Sometimes, yeah. you know, seeing what somebody else is doing might inspire you to come up with your own, True. you know, something, add something new or, or try a new style that you yeah. haven't tried before, new techniques. Right. And so that's kind of what you were pushed to do in art school is try different things that you hadn't before. I think that's a, a critical thing to learn too, because in high school, we all think we're pretty good mm-hmm. at the, the creativity we choose, you know, usually because the people around us don't mm-hmm. do it, you know, whether you're writing or singing or drawing, you tend to be one of the better people in the group. And then you go off into the world and you're just another person among you're, you know, you're a small, small fish in a bigger pond. And, uh, and, yeah. then, and then, and the thing is just to kind of like, uh, well, even like we were going about the illustrations, one of the things I had to learn when I started doing illustrations was there's a difference between doing art and doing illustrations. And, you know, yeah, they're okay. both art, but there are certain factors you have to take into account when you're doing an illustration. First, one of the first things I, I, I learned, okay, when it comes to drawing, especially for picture books for children, exaggerate everything. Not, oh. not like it's, I, I call it the comic book rule. The hero doesn't okay. just throw a punch. His or her body completely twists to that punch. You know, make the image be as dramatic as possible because that's what's going to draw okay. the kid's attention. The other thing I had to learn was, you see, when you're doing a painting by itself, my, my deal is hey, you want to fill up all the space. The idea of leaving mm-hmm. big gaps with nothing really in it doesn't factor in. Now, illustrations, when I, when I remember I was working with uh, uh, Cinco Punto Press and Lee Bird and the guy who was my art, uh, the arts editor, and they were talking to me and they said, the, the drawings, first of all, Lucha Libre, the man in the silver mask, they said, the drawings look great, but it's too busy. And I said, what do you mean it's too busy? Well, you have all this crowd here. He goes, well, yeah, that's, that's those are the kids that are watching the fight. And he says, yeah, but they're going to get covered up. It looks beautiful, but they're going to get covered up. And I say, why cover it up? Because what you're doing, your illustrations is a splash page where the word has to go on the actual parts of the image. And he said, so we need to leave big gaps intentionally because that's mm-hmm. where the words are going to go. And uh, I remember uh, when they told me that, you know, so it took a lot uh, for me to get <laughs> used to that idea. It's like a whole shift yeah, of yeah, mindset like, there. Like, like, uh, like there was like this one here. This, this image of that. You see that there's the father sitting there. Okay. All the, there was a whole bunch of kids here, but the text has to go somewhere. The text. And so, I, so that's uh, by the by my second book I illustrated. By the third book, I I learned that I learned that okay, put okay. a lot of drama on this side. But this section on, on this on the on this right side or the left side of the page, don't put a lot. Put very even leave big gaps because what's going to happen is those uh, that's going to get covered up. And so I kind of it was a, like I said it was a learning process. Like here in 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 Tarakosa the Texas you got all this action on this side, and just big gap over here where it's just nothing, ma- right. nothing major. Because that's where the text is going to go. And now it's become second nature. But yeah. in the beginning, that was a real struggle because the the way I had been trained to like just think of the image without text. And I was like, oh, that's, it's too plain. I got to add something to it. So you kind of had to fight against that nature of wanting to put something in there. And uh, and they kind of thought, so I, I developed a little bit of a, technique where I would uh, on, on the computer I would type in the text and then kind of 
on average, okay. figure out more or less how, how much I think it was gonna, space it was going to take. And I would be working on the drawing. And then I would just put a paper there and kind of like, you know, and, and then just kind of put it there. So to give me an idea of, you know, now there's some illustrations that the books I've done where it's image and text on the on opposite pages. Right. And that's that you can fill up as much as you want. But it's a it's a learning learning process. That, True. And that kind of goes, you have to work with your, your publisher yeah. as well, kind of how they're going to format that. So how did you get into this project of illustrating and writing a whole well, series? Uh, as a kid, I grew up my whole life, honestly, surrounded by storytellers. My father was a storyteller. Okay. Grandfather was a storyteller. Never met my great grandfather, but he, everybody tells me he was an amazing storyteller. And uh, my grandmother was a storyteller, too. And what I tell people is that a friend of mine once told me, I would do storytelling. A friend of mine said, that's great. But those are those stories original? Said, yeah, they're final stories. But instead of just telling them, you should really write them down, which was another learning yeah. process in itself. So did you not do a whole lot of writing I, before I that? I did writing, but I never really, it was one of those where I did it in high school. But I really never really thought of any, pursuing it as anything mm. as a career. You know, it was sure. just, you know, okay. I would do some poetry. I would write some stories. But basically, it was just enough to fulfill the requirements of the class I was taking, you know. And so sure. then I sat down and I started trying to, to write. And which was, like I say, it was a learning process in itself because you tell the story, but to write it down, sometimes the way you tell it doesn't work when it's written down. So you have change sure. and so then but so I, I did that and then I started doing uh illustrations that would go with my story I tell people my bachelor's and my master's are all in art the writing was just something that I had done off and on and then just developed over time and so then I decided you know what I'm gonna try to get published try to do a book and do my own illustrations and and it was a long process uh for eight years I got a whole bunch of rejection letters. Uh, I would get, uh, some were very polite, some were very supportive, some were like, nope. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> so it was a whole process now. So what I started doing was just going to book festivals, book fairs, and just reading. And then I would put together my own little mm. chapbooks, like Kinkos, that I would sell for like five bucks to try to pay for gas and stuff. And the way I got published so I got my foot in the door was I was at a and and I, and I will always be thankful to about my good friend of mine Tony Diaz uh he's from Houston he has a he had a he has a group called Nuestra Palabra the Houston and it's also like a, a radio show that he does and uh he mm-hmm. he booked me uh he, to perform at the 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 Latino Family Book Festival in Houston and I was that, nice. yeah, so it, it was, I mean, it was a, back when they had it, it was a big book festival. You know, lots and lots of people would go there. It was uh, one of the, it was one of the book festivals that's under the umbrella that Edward James Ormos Latino Family Book Festival. And he booked me to read. And it just so happened that I tell people, uh, it sounds very dramatic, but the whole thing took place like in about, you know, the whole conversation was like maybe five minutes tops. Uh, I was reading and Dr. Canelos was there. Dr. Canelos is the president of the Publico, Publico Press, the oldest, largest publisher of Latino literature. And he, wow. he, heard, me, he heard me read. And uh, we had a brief conversation. And when I say brief, I mean like five minutes. And he talked to me and he said, the, who does your illustrations? Why? Well, those are my drawings. Oh. Okay. And he said, he gave me his card and said, okay. He said, call me. Call me on Monday. And this is my card. And, uh, and, you know, showed him a, gave him one of the little chapbooks and stuff. And, and then after that, I told Tony was there and he said, what happened? What did Canelo's want? Well, he wanted to talk. He told me to call him on Monday. He said, oh man, I think he might publish you. So, and then I caught my, this is Saturday. So it's Saturday wow. and Sunday. And I called him on the phone. Another like five minute conversation. He said, yeah, yeah. Send, send me, you have a manuscript? And I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, well, send it to me, but put it to my attention. So I, I, I mailed it to him back. It was still everything done by mail. So I sent it to him. Then I waited. And then I got a call. 
And no, I got an email and he asked me in the email, hey, are you willing to work with an editor? And I said, yeah, I go, definitely, not a problem. <laughs> and he said, okay, you'll get a, uh, we'll send you a contract. And then I got a contract. Yeah. Oh, wow. so, and then that was how uh, I can honestly, and that's how I got my foot in the door and got my first book, Creepy Creatures and Other Cuckoos. And then that also led to, I uh, was, a, I mean, I'm a big, book festivals have been some of my biggest breaks. So I had one book. I had Creepy Creatures and Other Cuckoos that was going to be coming out soon. And while I was doing that, I was at the, Inter-American Book Festival, which was held in San Antonio back back uh, back in I want to say it was 90, 98 at the uh, at the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center, and mm. I had been booked there to read with two friends of mine, Luis Valderas and Rene Saldana Jr., and we called ourselves the Three Wayward Batos. So uh, and basically we had thirty minutes. We had about eight minutes each to go up there and do a story. And while I was there, uh, uh, Bobby Bird was there and he's from uh, Cinco Punto Press. And he heard me do uh, a story called El Chupacabras alias El Big Bird. And that led to, uh, you know, me talking to him and talking to Lee. And I told him, you know, I have an idea for a book. It's about Lucha Libre, Mexican wrestling. And, and we had a conversation there, and then we continued the conversation over the phone and via email. And next thing you knew, I was uh, doing the book, Lucha Libre, The Man in the Silver Mask. And then, and then wow. I told them, hey, uh, can I do all the illustrations? And they said, okay, can you, work, uh, can you work with an editor? And I ended up working with, uh, his uh, last name is Castro. He's done like tons of books. And that was a learning experience itself. And so really it was those two things that helped me get my foot in the door. The, the, the Latino Family Book Festival where I met Dr. Canelos and the Inter-American Book Festival where I met Bobby and Lee Bird. And that's how I wow. ended up. And I tell people it sounds really dramatic, but all those conversations were like maybe five, six, seven minutes top. You know? <laughs> Well, I think that's really cool, though. It, it, it's a real testament to the work that goes behind getting your foot in the door, because going to several book festivals and just being there, investing in the the $5 books and trying to sell them, like that's a lot of work. And I'm sure there were moments of ups oh, yeah. and downs all in between there. That's that's great. And I hopefully will open up again soon and people can find some book festivals near them. But I did one before we all closed down and it wasn't even a book festival. It was just a the art and music show in Carrollton, wow. Texas. But it was fun what? just talking to people. Did you enjoy oh, that I, aspect? I love doing school visits, book festivals. As a matter of fact, we are doing one. I have to try to get the name. The name. Because in Texas, yeah. so yeah, lucky. we're doing one uh, here in uh, in tomorrow. Actually, it's gonna be oh, uh, it's gonna be good. It's a uh, Carmen Tafoya is gonna be there, as is uh, Margie Longoria, who wrote, who put together an anthology, growing up along uh, of stories, growing up along the border, and it's gonna be fun oh. because it's a. I, I was I hadn't really thought about it, so I said like. This is the first time that I am reading in front of a live audience again since the first week of March of last year. So it's wow. like it's been over over a year. And uh, I, if I was reading at, at a Wooten Elementary in uh, Austin, and little did I know that that would be the last reading I would do for a long, long time. That's yeah, because it's just it was it was still I mean Zoom is good, but it doesn't take the place of being an audience, yeah. and getting the reactions. Exactly. Yeah, it, I mean it's good that we have yeah. it for this this time, but it'll be great to get back. So tell us a little bit about Luce Libre in case people don't really know what oh. it is and how it has influenced well, uh, you. The best way to describe Lucha Libre. It's, you know, to I tell people, a romanticized view of it is this. I tell them, Lucha Libre is a poor man's theater. 
as they say in Spanish, el teatro de los pobres. You have antagonists and you have protagonists. They, they're cast in leading and supporting roles. They wear the outlandish costumes, the masks, the capes, the tights, the whole theatrics. And they're playing out the oldest play in the world. It's good versus evil. Evil is winning, 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 and then somehow good manages to triumph in the end. And to a kid, I mean, to a kid, this people, they wear the masks, they wear the capes, they wear the tights, they literally look like superheroes and supervillains, you know, but the exception being they're not drawings in a comic book. They're real people. And uh, yeah. and just like all other sports, and whether it's in some people say, well, it's wrestling, it's it's lucha libre real, it's sports entertainment. And just like mm-hmm. anything else, it has open venues for people that you know are on the we were on the lower economic scale where they found a venue where they would you know basically were able to lift themselves up, you know, and doing a job that they love. I mean, one of the biggest icons in Mexico is the original man in the silver mask, El Santo, El Mascarado de Plata. He, he, he was a wrestler who became a celebrity, who became a movie star, made 56 B-movies in his lifetime or something along those lines. Wow. He became so iconic that he would not allow himself to be seen in public without his mask. And, and when he died, when he, when he died, uh, he, uh, the, the 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 movies always said the mask is what made him immortal. If you remove the mask wow. from the, from him from the man, he became mortal, just like everybody else. And what happened is he really wanted to give this character this great ending. And he was diagnosed with a heart condition. He was having to take nitroglycerin mm-hmm. pills, and so he kind of knew his time was up. So he wanted to give this character this big ending. So he went on a tour where he wrestled. Mind you, this is a man like who was already in his seventies, but he would wrestle. Uh, and uh, it was his farewell tour. And then, right. while being interviewed interviewed on television by Hikobu Holodowski, who was like the Walter Cronkite of Mexico, they asked him near the end of the show, "Is there anything you want to share?" You know, with your fans. And he said, "Well, I want to tell everybody that my name is Rodolfo Guzman Huerta." And that said, he unlaced his mask and he lifted it up for just a moment and showed everybody his face. A few weeks later, he would die of a heart attack. The idea being that playing out of the story, when he did that, he became mortal. And oh, the beautiful. funeral was televised. Tons of people came out chanting Santo, Santo, as his coffin was carried through the streets to his final resting place. And uh, and they had even even uh, they had a the wait before the burial. It's like they had they had a private one for his family. But then when they uh, when that was over, they put the mask on him, and they allowed uh. people to come in and pay their last respects to this lucha libre icon. That to me, that's the thing about lucha libre. These people become so embedded in in pop culture. And uh, I mean, I tell people when you go to a Mexican curio shop where they sell like a bunch of artifacts from like, like stuff from Mexico, these are some things you will always find. You will always find a picture of La Virgen de Guadalupe. She will be there. You will always find a picture of one of the big three, either a picture of Pedro Infante, Jorge Negrete, or Luis Aguilar, which were like three other big Mexican singers of, of, of their time. You will always find a picture of Frida Kahlo somewhere. And you will always find something that relates to Lucha Libre, whether it's the mask or a picture. Because they're just, it, it has become a big part of, of, of Mexican slash um, you know, Latino American pop culture. Right, right. I think what's really cool about that is it is, the good guy, you know, that good versus evil. So becoming an icon of somebody who's on the, on the, excuse me, on the stage fighting always for the good Mm -hmm. to win. I think that that's pretty awesome that they become the social icons. And the good of it also is that I tell people this, you know, you know, it could be anybody. 
because they wear the mask. The yeah. person buying a gallon of milk at the grocery store, he or she could be a masked luchador or luchadora, and you would never even know it. And while they wear the mask, you know, while they wear the mask, they become this bigger-than-life persona, the living embodiment of mm-hmm. a cultural stereotype or an Aztec god or something. But the but once the show is over, they go to the dressing room, they take off the mask, they change their clothes, and they go out and they just merge, mingle among the, cl- the crowd. Nobody none the wiser that this Right. Bigger than life character that they were just cheering moments ago is now um, walking among them, which is kind of like part of the whole superhero persona of it. And, uh, right. Because you don't, you never, like, like they say, like the, like the Superman joke, but how come nobody could ever tell that it's Superman, even though all he's wearing is just a pair of glasses? Well, because in their mind, people never really truly think of him being anybody but Superman. It's like if you're yes. Superman, why would you want to be anybody else? So they can't think of the concept of being Superman and then allowing yourself to become something lesser, more human. Yeah. So right. I, that's kind of like the idea behind that whole, that the mask gives you that power. Right. Absolutely. So did you, this this obviously affected you as a young boy, I think, like seeing these men, you know, in this play out, this fight of good and evil, along with other um, comic books. Did you did you start writing that storyline? Um, was that influenced maybe by your childhood? By what was it influenced by where you, you kind of came back uh, around to that loop? Uh, of- uh, virtually everything that I write is influenced in one way or another by my childhood. Mm. When it comes to the Lucha Libre, yeah. I mean, I grew up watching this mass heroes on television and at the wrestling shows. And when uh, I wrote a poem, it, it all started with a poem. I wrote a poem called The, the Day The Day El Santo Died. And it was a whole poem about, you know, when he died and the, the, the way that people reacted. And so then that poem turned into... Santo, 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 which was basically a, an extension of that story. And then that, mm-hmm. in turn, became the book Lucha Libre, The Man in the Silver Mask. And then that in itself, The Man in the Silver Mask, kind of became Maximilian and the Mystery of the Guardian Angel, which is a young adult book okay. series that deals with uh, 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 a boy named Max who loves Lucha Libre. He idolizes it. And his favorite wrestler is the guardian angel, whom has been wrestling since before he was even born. But in the story, in the young adult story, he does what he doesn't know. Nobody in the family knows this. It's that the guardian angel is really his great uncle, who everybody in the family, including his mother, thinks died 37 years ago in a bar fight in Monterrey. But all this time, He's been living this secret life as the guardian angel, the most famous masked wrestler in the world. And then then one night it all comes together, it collides when at at a wrestling match, they discover that it's him and that he's alive. And, and the mom, the mom is very, he's in the, the mom of the story. She's very strict, very stern, very demanding, but in a, but in a comical way, when she sees that it's him, mind you, this was her favorite uncle growing up. When she sees that it's him, she's shocked for about two minutes. And then she goes, but then when she snaps out of it, she looks at me and goes, aren't you supposed to be dead? And then she's all like, and then she gets really mad at him. She was like, you let every, you let all of us believe that oh, it's <laughs> That you were dead and all this stuff. And then he says, she said, I even made a day of the dead altar for you when I was little. And she goes, he goes, really? Feeling very flattered. He said, oh, don't get too excited. It was it was a very small altar and I was but a child. You know, she was like, <laughs> and, and, and the deal with him is he himself is that he kind of did that because he, uh, every, he, he just kept messing up. He was always messing up. He was always just, 
messing up till one day, you know, when this opportunity presents of where everybody thought he was dead. So he just, this other world presented itself. And and so he becomes the guardian angel, becomes this bigger than life character. But along the way, he loses himself because the character's too big. I mean, a cultural icon and he's kind of, he, he's kind of living this life as this fictional character, having lost track of who he really truly is. And uh, right. so the story about going home, that no matter what happened, no matter what you did, no matter, you could always go home. And for the boy, Max, the deal with Max is he's like, he has just learned that he is the, the guardian angel, the greatest mass wrestler in the world is his own great uncle. That makes him lucha libre royalty, and he can't tell nobody. I love he it. Can't tell nobody oh, no. because he is sworn to keep his great uncle's identity secret. Oh, that's oh, so hard. Yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's been a four book series right now. <clears throat> that's amazing. It, what's amazing to me is you tell the story too. Like I'm completely drawn into it. I need to read these books. I grew up with storytelling. Like I said. Exactly. That's what I was going to ask you is like some, some people find it difficult. They might have an idea of a story, but you have the complete thing already in your head. Do you think that that's because you grew up with people telling stories to you? I think it is. I remember one of some of my fondest wish memories, some of my fondest memories of my grandfather Ventura uh, is uh, of him sitting in a rocking chair, metal rocking chair in the porch, a rocking chair that had been spray, been spray painted so many times that the paint would flake off. Every, like when he would rock, you could see paint flaking off. And he would <laughs> sit there, my, it's a terrible habit, but he would be smoking his kite, uh, his uh, bugler or kite brand cigarettes, the kind that you wrap yourself and you have to lick the tip to close them, but that was the, the, back then. And he would sit there telling us stories. And me and my cousin Bobby and my other cousin would all sit there. The secondhand smoke would be darned, you know, and listen yep. to him tell like some of the coolest stories we ever heard. And he swore all of them were real. And they all either happened to him or a friend of a friend of a friend. And uh, so it was like a really just, you know, uh, you know, so I really didn't, you know, well, like I didn't really start noticing it till that I like to do stories till I was later. But my mom would tell me, oh, no, I used to always do stories. She goes, because she used to work at a, at a at a store. And she said, sometimes uh, we would, my mom, my dad would get there waiting to pick her up. From work and I, I start talking to some of the ladies that were there at the registers and stuff. He goes, "Oh yeah, you would start telling them all kinds of stories." And I was like, "I was like, I must have been maybe like seven, you know." So I don't remember any of that. But you know, she asked, she said, "Oh yeah, you always like to tell stories." And uh, so you know, I, it's something I grew up with. And as a matter of fact, uh, let me show you something real quick. Yeah, mind you, I never met him, but this would be. My great grandfather, Ventura. Oh, he's handsome. And they say he was an amazing storyteller. And so he looks a lot like my dad, but it's like. He looks a lot yeah, like a you. Bit. I can see that. And, uh, and so it's like one of those deals where, you know, like I said, never met him. He had already passed by the time I was born. But everybody says he was, I love his mustache, those big mustaches that were yes. all the way down. But yeah, so it's like, so they gave me that photograph of him. And uh, so it's like, my grandfather got it from him. My dad got it from my my grandfather. My grandmother learned it from my grandfather because he was always telling stories. And then she just kind of started telling stories too. It was just one of those family things that happened. happened. And, and, And also my grandmother would say, Oh, yeah, because he used to tell a lot of stories because back then we didn't have no television. And there was not a lot of these other distractions. So people told stories. Yes, yes. I think a lot of our modern cultures have really lost that storytelling technique because we haven't 
grown up with it as much. A lot of our cultures, have, it seems like the Latino culture has held on to it for a little bit longer than some of the other American cultures, which is sad to me. It, well, it's sad that we've lost it, not <laughs> that you've held, held it. At one good aspect of the all this new technology, and that is that you can mm-hmm. actually, like, if we had had this when my uncle, when my great-grandfather was around, we could have recorded it. And then you could hear it. Yeah, uh, it's true. like I know a, a po- two poets whom I love their work, and I and they they were good friends of mine growing up. They were big inspirations was Raúl Salinas and Trinidad Sanchez Jr. And they both passed, but you know, but I love their voice. They had a this, there was a rhythm to their voices when they told poets poems. And the the good thing is, even though they've been gone for a long time. I can still type in Trinidad Sanchez Jr. and I click videos. There's recordings yeah. of him. Like there's about maybe like five of them where he's doing some of his poems. And, and I get a little curious sometimes, you know, because it's like it's a little, there's a little bit of them that's still around. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you can say, well, their books are around. Yeah, their books are around. But it's not the same. It's like when you hear, right. you read it. In, in the written word, but to hear them actually just, you know, say it. And certainly, Raul Salinas had almost like a twang to his voice when he would talk, tell his poem, uh, a twang, nasal quality to the rhythm. But I tell people it's like Willie Nelson. There's a there's a certain sound to the voice that it has. It has. It's a, tre- a little trembly, but it, but there's a rhythm. Yes. There's a flow to it that just kind of goes that that you just can't duplicate when you're just reading the lyrics. That's true. That makes me think of maybe before people, artists really embodied their work more than perhaps we do these days. Cause I know quite a few writers who hide behind the book. They, they don't, you know, Oh, I don't know how to read it. Well, I don't, which I'm sure that is a quality you need to learn, right? Just like anything else, possibly reading out loud, telling stories out loud is a little bit different, like you said, from writing. But what, But if you don't learn that and you don't fully embody your work, you kind of, maybe we're missing something, you know, whereas before they would go out on tour and, and yeah. give their own and work. I think and also, they if, were the way. If you don't do it yourself, then you're kind of leaving it open for somebody else to interpret, True. you know, and, 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 and they give their own rendition of it. I know, uh, to me, one of the strangest things is when I hear somebody else reading my work, it's, you know, how there's, you know, some, when I hear that, it's like, it's it's cool because it's somebody else's interpretation of it. And uh, one of the mm. best interpretations I saw of, one of my work was uh, a 16-year-old kid who's a lot older now. But he was 60 years at the time, and he was reading one of my stories, and he was so dramatic that I thought to myself, like, wow, he's telling it better than I could. You know, it was just amazing to, cool. hear, to hear him. That's really cool. So let's talk a little bit about your paintings, too. Was that, did painting come before illustration? Uh, yeah. The, the, I tell people uh, drawing came before pretty much everything. Uh, as a kid, everything. I was a doodler. I was always doodling. I was, I'd be the kid at school. Yes, I'm listening to the teacher. But I can't just sit there and listen. Right. I'll have I have to be like just doodling, making drawings with no real direction. It's just little figures here and there. But I'm listening. If 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 she was just to hear, she was to stop me and ask me to repeat what I they just said. I could repeat it, and I understood the lesson and I understood what the, the what they were telling me. But I could not right. sit in a desk just listening. I, I couldn't yeah. do it, you know, for the life of me. I, I just, even to this day, I can't just, like, if I'm, if I'm in a plane, I have to have something to be doodling on because I can't just sit there unless I'm very tired and I need to take a nap. I just can't do it. And uh, and uh, my mind's always, like, just going. I have, you know, ideas yeah. or, or stuff that I want to, I feel like I need to put it down somewhere because, if I, if I don't do it, I'm going to forget it. And that is one of the things that I always do. When I go to schools, I tell kids, you know, if you want to be a writer, there's three things you should do. The first one is you write, write, write a lot. Because it's like a muscle. The more you write, the better you become. Same deal with drawing. 
The other one is to read. Read as many books as you can, because when you're reading, you're learning how to write. And the third one is to write it down. A lot of truly mm. great ideas are lost because people just don't write them down. And they deal with, with the art. I mean, I'll get an idea for, for, for a drawing that I think would be kind of cool. So I'll make a quick sketch of it. And after I make the sketch of it, okay, I just put it away. I have the idea. I have the concept. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't, I might forget it or, it might, or I might remember it. But it's not going to be the same because it, it changes it. You know, it'll, it'll evolve over time and into something maybe different from what the original idea was. Now, once right. from drawing, it came the painting and then came the illustrating. And uh, so it was like this whole, you know, it, each one has been a different process. Right. Illustrating being the last one. Now, I'm kind of, I'm still not, I'm, I've been trying to drawing on the computer, like doing, doing that type of mm-hmm. illustration. I don't, I mean, I'm getting better at it. I don't think it's good enough for me to ever think of doing that in a book at this point in time, but down the road. I really like the, I have friends of mine that are illustrators that use the computer. A a lot of them use it for the color aspect. They'll have their drawings, they'll scan them. And what one of them showed me a, a really cool thing that he does. What he does is like, if he sees a certain texture on a wall that he really likes, he'll take snap pictures of it then he'll take that texture and put it on, like he'll have his drawing like in the black and white, like come all like a color, coloring book. Then he'll take that yeah. texture that he liked and he'll put it on the image. Oh, and then that's he also, cool. Well, I kind of, I told him, I kind of like the brush strokes. Like, you know, he goes, you can do that. He said, what you do is you get a piece of paper, you get some paper and just do different brush strokes, different colors, whatever. And you take pictures of it and then you can put it on the actual image so it's it's a and so but it's like it's a it's like everything else it's a learning process it all it's another learning yeah. process yeah. but it's also <laughs> part of this whole idea of you know you always have to be willing to learn something new you don't yeah. you kind of become stuck in it and uh, you don't don't you really don't want to do that uh, that's true yeah. Well, for the kids these days who probably know the computer stuff, because all of our kids know way more than we do, right? Would you still recommend that they learn to do it by yeah, hand? I tell do it okay. by hand still, because when it comes down to it, you still have to know the basics. It's like mm-hmm. I tell uh, my, like when my son was getting his driver's license, you know, uh, the, the car he was using was an older car that I was using at the time. And, and I told him, uh, you know, to parallel park. And he said, oh, the new cars have the camera and it's so easy. I said, yeah, but here's the deal. If you learn how to parallel park in one of these cars that doesn't have the camera or doesn't parallel park for you, you'll be able to do it in a snap with the newer stuff. And uh, and uh, and to the and you know he kind of was all like, uh, right ever right, but you know what he can parallel park better than I. He can right. parallel park much better than it took him a while. It was frustrating for him, but now it's like he just kind of like goes in, backs it up, he's just, and he's like nothing. But that's because he learned how to yeah. do basics first, and then and then the uh, the newer car that we have, it's got the camera, the reverse camera, and so that like that's he's like. But it's one of those deals that he, you know, you have to learn your basics. You know, you have to learn the, right. the basic to be able to do it with just your hands. And then from there, the computer is in addition to, not in place of, you know, so. That's true. And it's hard to think that someday we wouldn't have the computer. But really, you know, if you ever find yourself on a trip without a computer and you're someone who needs to doodle, then you need to have you know, your, your supplies with you or just, you know, it's always good to use our hands. You know, I, I write most of my stories by typing, but it's also good to use this muscle. So why don't you tell people a little bit about what's coming up? So you have a show tomorrow, which is you know, by the time this comes out, it won't be tomorrow. <laughs> but maybe what's coming up and where people uh, can find you. Well, I have in the a books. couple of books. Uh, I'll have I have books number nineteen and twenty coming out. Yeah. So the, wow. the one, the both of these books are with Arte Publico. One is called La Llorona Can't Scare Me, 
And it's about a little boy named Damian, who is the bravest little boy in the whole world. Nothing scares him. And the, the story starts, it's like, the scary ghost called La Llorona is hollering up a storm, screaming outside my window, trying to scare me. But am I scared? No, I'm not. Not even a little bit. No matter how loud she screams, I, mis hijos, where are my children? You see the picture, you see the Llorona by the window looking. And then he says, <laughs> he goes, at that, he goes, so what does she do? She calls in her monster friends, Los Cucuis, to try and scare me. And so then he sees there's two witch owls, Lechuzas, flying around in this room. But am I scared? Not even a little bit. And then there's, he hears the sound of three little duendes, little trolls whispering under his bed. And he looks down and one of them yells, are you scared yet? And he says, not even a little bit. And then he hears somebody knocking one, two, three, four times at his door. And he thinks it's a donkey lady because he can hear her going hee-haw, hee-haw on the other side. But am I scared? No, I'm not, you know? And then he hears the sound of footsteps <laughs> running across his rooftop. And there's he sees a chupacabra leap off the rooftop and perch itself on the tree across from his window. But is he scared of the chupacabras? No, he is not. And all these monsters keep showing up trying to scare him. So finally, you know, you know, he says, I'm not scared of any of you. And La Llorona says, why are you not scared of me? Why are you not scared of us? And he says, do you really want to know? And La Llorona, yes, we really want to know. It's because I have a secret weapon that will make you all run away and hide. And he holds up. A, a, a nightlight shaped like a mighty mass wrestler. And he plugs it in, and the light sends all the cookies running for a place to hide. And that he goes, and that's why La Llorona can't scare me, and neither can her monster friends. Oh, I love so that. So it's like that's a, what that one's about. It's uh so it's uh basically all this monsters of Mexican folklore trying to scare you. But he's scared. Everything the ancestors tried to scare yeah. their kids with <laughs> to not go do something. And, uh, and the, the other book that I have coming out, also with the Public, with the fourth installment in the Vincent Ventura Monster Fighter series, Monster Fighter Extraordinaire series. It's a boy named Vincent Ventura. And uh, I, I, I modeled his name. I used my son's name for that character because I'm a big mm -hmm. believer in names. You know, it's names mm -hmm. having special meaning or symbolism. His, his full name is, Vin, my son's full name is Vincent Ventura Gasta. Vincent means to conquer. Ventura means mm -hmm. to have adventures. So I kind of like, I kind of, that's so Vincent Ventura. And the deal is, he lives across the street. Is the house, he lives on Duende Street. And the house across from his is 666. That's its address. And all kinds of monsters are always moving in. In the first book, it was a man who turns into a chupacabras. In the second book, it's a girl who's a witch owl whose grandmother is trying to turn her evil. In the third book, it's this boy named Thayer who's being uh, bullied by these little green trolls doing this. The fourth one, it's the lady that moves in. Her, it's, his, it's a substitute teacher at his school. And her first name is Malin. Her last name is Che, which is Malin Che, which is also one of the names that La Llorona is known for, goes under. And so, so La Llorona has moved into his house, the house across the street. Oh, no. So that's, that's going to be the, those are the two books that are coming out. That's wonderful. That's so, so where can people find, um, find these books and, Find more uh, about you. Uh, well, they can, uh, if they go to cinco.press.com and just type in my uh, okay. or if they go to Arte Public, or actually if they get on Google and just type in Javier Garza with an X, I'm the first thing that pops up. And uh, and uh, also Barnes & Nobles carries all, all of my books. You go to the children's book section in the bilingual section. All my books are bilingual. Uh, they're, they're all bilingual. Okay. English was a Spanish translation, except for my first one. That one was just all English. But I'm a big believer in, in the dual language thing. And uh, so yeah. uh, all my books up to this point have been bilingual. Yes, I, I am a big proponent of that as well. We're bilingual here. Some of us trilingual, but uh, people need to. 
it, I think it exposes kids more to more cultures or to cultures that they're connected to, but, you know, through their parents, their grandparents, and we need to not lose all that. So that is really cool. Well, I'll, I'll definitely be putting the links in the show notes so people can um, just click on them and find more about Javier Garza. But thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. Back to be here. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.